Welcome to 1001 Reasons to be Afraid of the Dark, where we say it happily now to lull ourselves into a false sense of security. (laughs) (laughs) Everything that's horrific and yet interesting. (laughs) Any any good snacks today, Dawn? Buckwild Buffalo Ranch Snack Mix. It has pretzels, hickory, almonds, honey roasted sesame sticks, chili corn nuts, ranch seasoned almond poppers. But you know who's advertising? Oh my goodness. Look at <laughs> They're quite good for trail mix. All right. Fair enough. What are, what are you eating? Uh, my mom got me this bag of Oreo popcorn. <gasps> I beg your pardon? Yeah, I had never heard of it before either, but it's pretty good. Yum. I'm trying to see if there. Yeah, yeah, it just says cookie pop. Oreo oh. popcorn. So it's just Oreo cookie pieces on vanilla drizzled popcorn. I want that. And <laughs> I want to see that at work tomorrow. I will bring some for you tomorrow. <laughs> Woo! I got snacks. You know, like when you open a bag of popcorn and you just like that popcorn smell? Yes. It's I love that, that, but also the inside of an Oreo. But like sweet. Oh, mm-hmm. yum. I like it's, that. It's very nice. Alrighty. Would you like to go first today? Or do you want me to go first? Uh, you go first. I'm intrigued on what you're about to say. Oh, geez. <laughs> um, mine's really long. I have nine pages of notes. <gasps> okay. Yeah, yeah. You go first. Girl. <laughs> I'll follow you with something uh, pretty stomach-twistingly sweet. Okay. I may anybody a hint. <laughs> I don't know. I may split it into two parts. We'll see. Ooh, I like that idea. We'll see how long it takes. Because I don't want everyone to just sit here for two hours listening to me go on and on and on about something horrific. I mean, it's the perfect time if they have a two-hour drive. That's fair. Sit back, <laughs> relax. <laughs> Grab your Oreo popcorn. Okay. So. We are going back in time to 1947. Okay. J. Edgar Hoover was, or I guess was, had successfully launched the FBI, uh, which had been running for about just over a decade at that point. They had already stored 1.4 million fingerprint cards on file. Oh. Yeah. Ten years running and they already have over a million fingerprints. That's insane. Hmm. Just who do you think goes through those cards? Like it's not like you can't just search it up. It's the 40s. You have to like one by one go through those and compare them. That's when they had that old bitter (gasps) woman in the basement. And just like Yeah, bitter because she was in the basement. (laughs) Yeah. And he goes, I want prints for john smith and she'll be like there's 30 of those (laughs) no no but think of like how you had to identify a random fingerprint that's you'd have to literally hold it up what that would take forever you'd have to like look at the different oh yeah i can only imagine how hard that must have been that's a reason to be afraid right there that's no thank you (laughs) anyway Super we're, off, we're off to a great start. I'm already tangent. <laughs> Five minutes in, just on fingerprints. <laughs> First bullet point, and we're already gone. All right. Great. That's great. 
Uh, so Harry Truman was the president of the States, the U.S. of A. Um, I feel bad because I know nothing about that person. I, I know I got nothing. <laughs> then Google, I'm like, who was Truman? <laughs> I feel real bad. Eh. I'm a bad neighbor. Uh, there were 119 homicides in the city of LA that year, with a total population of 1.9 million. So to put that into perspective, in 2019 the population was 3.9 million, with <gasps> only 10 more homicides so 129 homicides that's crazy so you may think like wow that's you know either good or bad but it was that 119 homicides for 1.9 million people is a lot mm-hmm. like a lot a lot uh, well yeah they didn't have the technology we have uh yeah, it was also just after the war yeah yeah so there was a boom in um violent crime mm-hmm. because of the war and everything um so yeah so 129 homicides in 2019 and then of course 2020 happened and the number of homicides skyrocketed to 343 um just in la oh my god yep so of the 119 homicides in los angeles in 1947 53 of the deceased were white 52 were black, 13 were Mexican, and one was listed as just Asian. (gasps) Whatever. Like, that's a pretty broad stroke there. Uh, So, of course, let's please take those numbers and classifications with, like, the largest possible grain of salt. um, Because it was the 40s. And I don't want to think about the errors. (laughs) That that would have been. Um, 15 of the 119 homicides were unsolved. This is one of those homicides. So I... (laughs) I'm going to start this story directly with a quote from an LA Times article from 1997 by Larry Harsnitch. The legend insists on a shadowed epic tone. The newspaper photographs look like the movie stills from a classic crime film. Even the name of the story is rooted in darkness. The Black Dahlia. Oh, I love, I love yet hate this. Right? I love it, but I hate it at the same time. Mm -hmm. So it is definitely one of the most famous unsold murders Mm -hmm. in North America. So Elizabeth was one of five daughters of Phoebe and Cleo Short. She was born on July 29th, 1924 in Boston, Massachusetts. Massachusetts. Massive two shits. (laughs) Uh, She was born in Boston. Um, (laughs) Boston area. Another thing that we should probably know how to say, and we don't because we don't live there. Uh, But she grew up in Medford. Her father built mini golf courses. Hmm. Which, like, that's so cool and such a random job. Um, but he left them during the Great Depression in 1930. Uh, apparently, Elizabeth was often ill as a child. So when she was 16, her family decided to send her to Florida. I don't know why or what she was sick with, but I'm guessing you got sent to Florida for some good old vitamin D. Right. 
Um, when her condition wasn't improved, she moved across the country for some California stun instead for a few years after that. Hmm. Which, like, I wish. Oh, you're not feeling well? Go on vacation. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sounds <right>. great. <laughs> I mean, that's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> People she went to high school with described her as very pretty, incredibly nice, and wholesome. She would lightly tease a boy who liked her because she liked to see him blush. I say tease, I don't mean in a mean way. She would say, like, they should go dancing, and he would blush, like, things like that. Like, it was very, cute. yeah, it was very cute. Very proper. Yes. Elizabeth wrote letters home to her mother frequently, telling her how she was doing and what she was up to when she was in California. Um, but investigators say what she told her mother wasn't true and that she hid her life from her mother, whether it was out of shame or trying to protect her mother from worry. We will never know. In late 1946, in a San Diego movie theater, a family found Elizabeth. She had been sleeping there. Uh, they offered her refuge in their home, um, but it was a really small house and the extra body was a huge stressor on the family. Um, so they asked her to leave after the Christmas holidays had concluded. So they let her stay throughout Christmas, which is nice. And that way she had a nice warm place to stay during the holidays. Um, but that's, you know, a huge financial burden to have an extra person in there when it was already a small house. Mm -hmm. um, there are claims that Elizabeth would pick up various men and party a lot. There is no actual evidence of this, even though the media at the time, as well as several books and movies since then, have portrayed her as a beautiful upcoming actress who was flirting and partying her way to a Hollywood acting career. Um, that's not like I'm not saying she wasn't beautiful. She she was lovely. Um, who cares? But, she wanted to have a good time, just like that. A lot of maybe, us. but we don't actually know. So she did keep yeah. her personal life very private, even to her family. Mm. So we don't actually know what her daily life looked like in California. True. Um, we do know that she met a man named Robert Manley one evening while she was standing on a street corner. He offered her a ride home, to which she responded in a way that implies she told him she was not a sex worker. She just happened to be standing on a street corner. <laughs> <laughs> which is so something I would say sarcastically. Yeah, um, yep, yep. According to reports, she didn't even turn to look at him until he made it very clear that his intentions were good. He just wanted her to get home safely. He had a wife. There was no actual evidence that he was ever unfaithful. It seems that Robert and Elizabeth became friends, and they occasionally drank together at a bar. So when that San Diego family that had taken her in asked her to leave after the holidays, it was Robert that she had called to come pick her up. Now, she asked if he would drive her to the Biltmore Hotel and said she was going to travel to Virginia to visit her sister. He left her at the Biltmore Hotel at 6.30 p.m. on January 9th. At 10 a.m. on January 15th, now this is, uh, so he left her at the Biltmore Hotel on January 9th, 1947. Um, so then on January 15th, 1947, Betty Berzinger was pushing her daughter in a tailor tot stroller down Norton Avenue when she saw what at first she thought was just a mannequin laying in the overgrown grass of an empty lot. Um, it was a newer development area, so some of the lots were still empty, waiting for houses to be built. She had been heading to pick up her husband's shoes that were being repaired. And, of course, the closer she got, 
soon she realized that it was a body in the grass, so she ran to the nearest house to call the police. Mm. Now, just a bit of a sidebar here for our notes on what the American police force looked like at this time. So World War II had ended barely two years prior, which changed policing quite a bit. The war effort had sent off a large percentage of police officers overseas, which meant the end of the war brought a lot of vets back into the force. So the war saw a change of communication and working relationships between various agencies, both at home and across the pond. So when the war ended and everyone went back to their lives, there was this huge shift in agency cooperation. So the FBI and local police were more willing to work together on cases and share information. Relationships with the newspapers were at an all-time high. Reporters and media officials would help police identify victims, find leads, share information, you name it. So this can be great for the free-flowing of information, helping catch a culprit sooner. But of course, it can also greatly endanger the validity of a crime scene, how family members or witnesses are spoken to, evidence tampering. The list can go on and on and on. Mm -hmm. Basically, everything I just listed here as both a pro and a con happened in this case. Trains. Yay. <laughs> Will Fowler, a reporter for The Examiner, claimed that he had been the first to arrive at the scene after the call had been made to find the body. He claims he walked through the crime scene and closed Elizabeth's eyes. However... LAPD's Wayne Fitzgerald denies Will's claim, as he and his partner were on patrol and were the first to arrive at the scene. According to one letter of correspondence in the FBI file, multiple reporters arrived before the police did. So who knows who got there first and what happened, but regardless, this is what the officers found when they arrived. And if you don't know the full details of what happened to her... I am warning you now, it is very gruesome, and you may want to skip ahead 10, 15, 20 minutes. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. So. Whew, okay. Elizabeth Short was found face up with her eyes open. Her body had been posed with her arms bent up at 90 degree angles, with her hands over her head, and her legs spread apart. The flesh on her thigh, where Rose Tattoon had been, was removed, was later found stuffed into her vagina. Yeah, I'm sorry, it gets worse. She was bisected at the waist, specifically between L3 and L4, which is called a hemicorporectomy. So rather than a random bisection, it's considered a translumbar amputation. Oh my god. Oh my yeah. god. Oh. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, so according to a 2009 medical interview, completely unrelated to this case, only 66 hemicorporectomies have ever been performed as necessary medical procedures in recorded medical history. It has been done in extreme pelvis crushing cases and severe cancer patients. And that's it. So that and like that's more recently than the 40s as well. So like this was not a well-known thing to just do. According to some sources, there were also signs of 
vaginal and anal lacerations. And there was anal dilation of 4.45 centimeters or 1.75 inches. Oh my god. That's over three fingers wide. You mutilate. Oh. Uh-huh. Oh. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's more. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> this is terrible. Mm-hmm. So bad. So bad. Reports from the FBI include the details that one breast was removed and the bisection was done so cleanly that no internal organs were cut except to sever her intestines. Mm-hmm. Speaking of those intestines, you may wonder what happened to them when a person is cut in half. Well, our killer balled them up into a nice little cushion under her bum on the ground. Just because... A brush was used to scrub the body clean, and she was also drained of blood. According to the lab results, the brush used was cheaply made using palm tree fibers, making stiff, thin, wiry bristles. The bristles shed all over her open wounds. Mm. As for the breast that was removed, it is unclear from my research whether it was ever actually found. Some reports say all missing tissues were found stuffed inside of her. Others omit the details other than the bisection entirely. Fecal matter was found in her mouth and her stomach. (gasps) There were multiple lacerations on her face and torso, plus bruising from repeated blows to the head. Yeah, oh, this is gory. Mm Mm-hmm. The autopsy concluded the cause of death was a combination of hemorrhaging from the blows to the head and loss of blood from two specific cuts on her face. She was given what used to be known as the Glasgow smile. So oh my gosh. this is yeah, this is when a sharp instrument is used to cut the victim from the corners of the mouth up to the ears. Nowadays most people would think of it as the Joker smile. Um, But the worst part isn't the actual cutting. But as you scream in pain, (gasps) Ah! Ah! the cuts just rip further, extending the grin. In the mouth. Oh my god. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So the more you scream, the more it hurts, the worse it gets. Um, When I was looking through the FBI file, I saw photos of Elizabeth's face from her autopsy. It was horrifying and something I will never unsee. Um, oh, yeah. her, her entire face was covered in deep, large bruises to the point where you couldn't tell where one started and another ended. The oh. grin went on both sides of her mouth, nearly to her earlobes. It was disgusting and horrific and... Um, anyway (laughs) that's the list of that (laughs) I'm just like going through this is pretty morbid of me but just like looking at these photos this is crazy Mm -hmm. 
the FBI has full, like the full autopsy in their archives that you can oh look online God. if you so choose. I don't recommend it. It's really bad. Yeah. Yeah. I would not do that. It's a lot. Yeah. Um, I did a little dive into the Glasgow Smile and its histories just for funsies. Mm-hmm. So unsurprisingly, its origins go back to Glasgow. No shit. Um, as the Industrial Revolution swept Scotland and forced farmers and landovers to give away to factories, 19th century living was not the greatest because it was the 19th century. Mm -hmm. um, as in many cities in Europe at the time, Glasgow had an influx of people move in to find work, not enough housing or jobs to match those needs. So, of course, cue poverty, malnourishment, disease, which leads to an increase in crime. Gangs formed oftentimes around lines of religion. It's actually unknown who the first to give or receive the Glasgow smile was, but it quickly became the mark of anyone who had crossed one of the many gangs. It took nearly a century for law enforcement to get the gang violence under control in the city. A century! That's insane! By that time, the smile had already made its way out of the country and across the oceans. So, like, it, in that time, it was already, like, the Glasgow smile was a world-known practice. That just boggles my mind. Um, you just wonder how many crooked cops there were, though. Um, yeah, but also, like, it just, there was a lot of crime. Just yeah, a, like unprecedented amount of gang violence. So like you can't put it all in the cops. It was it was bad. Mm -hmm. Um. Now a not so fun. Well, none of it was a fun fact, but an, a lesser fun fact is if you hear someone reference the Chelsea grin, like the American Deathcore band, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, that is another name for the Glasgow Smile. It came from the crazed alt-right soccer fans who would become violent with other crazed alt-right soccer fans of other teams and full-on brawls would break out at games. Oh my god. Mm-hmm. They would get so intense that police would get scared to intervene. <laughs> uh-huh. At a soccer game. Oh, Jesus. People One such group was called the Chelsea Headhunters. And use the Glasgow smile as their calling card. Oh, no, they did not. Guess how recently this was. How recent? The 1980s. Oh. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. crazy. Mm -hmm. So, writers, murderers, gangs, you name it, have since used the Glasgow smile. And now, of course, we see it in The Joker. Okay, back to Elizabeth. Jeez. Right, my <laughs> head. My head is spinning. Right? Okay. So let's backtrack for a second here. A body has been discovered. It's insanely gruesome. She doesn't have her ID on her since she's naked and mutilated. Mm -hmm. IDing a victim in the 40s could take weeks, months. And an unknown woman murdered doesn't carry good continuous press. She needs a name. 
So the examiner made the police an offer. They would let the police use their tech to send the victim's prints to the FBI for more immediate results, as long as they got the scoop once she had been identified. So the Herald Express let LAPD use their sound photo, also known as a wired photo or telephotography. So it's a device used to send photos through telephone lines, very much like a fax machine, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, They send Elizabeth's fingerprints this way to the FBI, which they were able to identify as belonging to Elizabeth based on an underage drinking charge she had received when she was 19. Um, to say that a media frenzy followed this case for months afterwards is an understatement, considering everyone today still knows who this is. Yep. Uh, reporters were sent to check every hotel in the city, call anyone who ever knew Elizabeth, and find out literally anything they could about her, whether it helped to solve the case or not. A writer for the Examiner even called Elizabeth's mother under the guise that she had won a beauty pageant and had questions for the parents. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. After Mrs. Short raved about her daughter, the writer was the one that broke the news of the murder. What? Like, how incredibly cruel is that? Oh, God. Yep. The examiner also found Elizabeth's suitcase that she had left at the bus stop and turned it into the police, with the caveat that as long as they got to witness them opening it, of course. Several letters that she never got the chance to send were found amongst her belongings, which were, of course, then published by the paper. One thing about majorly publicized crimes that always surprises me is the amount of confessions. So people across the country were contacting the papers and the police to confess to Elizabeth's murder. Really? Yeah. Oh my so gosh. while we're pretty familiar at this point at the idea of false confessions, these people were calling in out of the blue. There was no outside pressure. No one was looking into their involvement. They just picked up the phone or wrote a letter. Most of it was written letters. Um, some reasons for this can be boiled down to psychological vulnerability, where the person seeks a kind of validation or comfort in admitting to the crime, even though they were in the opposite end of the country. Um, the fame attached to bigger cases can be appealing. Some people just simply want to be known, which is really heartbreaking when you get into the whole psychology of that, but a ridiculous amount of people tried claiming that they had brutally murdered her Uh, yeah now just over a very fucked up just over a week after her body was found the killer sent police a package inside were the bus station's receipt for the suitcases her social security card birth certificate a note she always carried about major matt gordon jr a membership card to the Hollywood Wolf's Club, and a 10-year-old address book with some pages missing that had belonged to nightclub business manager Mark Hansen. Police tracked down every man in her notebook, but came no closer to the truth. Presumably because the killer tore out the page with his name on it. 
But that's just my own personal. There were pages missing, so presumably. Um, John Douglas, a very well-known criminal profile uh, profiler, uh, he's the author of Mindhunter, the book that inspired the Netflix series, which if you haven't seen, definitely recommend you watch. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Um, he was one of the very first criminal profilers and was a unit chief in the FBI before he retired. Anyway, uh, he actually gave a profile of Elizabeth's killer and said if the crime had been committed in the 90s, which is when he gave the profile, it would have been easily solved. So imagine how quickly it would have been solved today. Mm-hmm. Although today's media would have been totally different. It would have Honestly, it probably would have been similar. And it's depressing to think about. Yeah. Um, but here's the profile quoted from an article in the LA Times from 97. He was a white man, no younger than his late 20s and possibly older, with a high school education. He lived alone, made his living working with his hands rather than his brains, was adept with a knife, and was con- comfortable wallowing in blood. For example, a butcher, a slaughterhouse worker, or possibly a hunter who knew how to dress out deer. He was under great personal and financial stress. He, in short, spent several days together, and he had been drinking. She rejected him. The mixture of personal stress, alcohol, and rejection exploded into murderous rage. Cutting the body in half was to make transportation easier, but the level of mutilation reflects a personal rage directed at short. You can just imagine him saying, you bitch, look who has the last laugh now. But why Norton Avenue? Douglas notes that there were far better places to dispose of a body. The killer took a high risk to place the body where he did because he wanted to put the fear of God into that specific neighborhood. Hmm. So that's comforting. Jesus. Um, The lead detective at the time of Elizabeth's murder also told a grand jury that he believed the killer had surgical uh, experience due to the specifics of her bisection. Which I support. I support that theory. Um, With how particular that bisection was and like not cutting any of the organs, that's... And like you have to know that and sharp, like definitely a sharp instrument. Yeah, which like yeah, you could do it as a butcher, but that's that takes some serious human anatomy know-how. Yep. Obviously, I'm not an FBI profiler, but I'm allowed. I'm allowed to my own theories. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So. Here are the suspects. So there were hundreds of suspects, and at least a dozen are mentioned in various media reports over the years. I'm only going to talk about a very small sampling of them. Um, most of them are ones with like the most solid facts um, that I could find that backed them up rather than ones that have been blown up out of proportion by the media. Um, and then one that I found very fascinating at the end um so of course the main suspect at first was robert manley who was the friend of elizabeth's um who was the last known person to see her alive so he's the one that dropped her off at the biltmore hotel um right before she disappeared 
Um, that being said, he passed a polygraph test. He was very cooperative with the police. He was cleared as innocent. Um, and then if he had to go home to his wife and explain why he was just detained and questioned for murder of a woman that he spent time with alone. Um, so hopefully he cleared that up with his wife. Otherwise, that'd be an uncomfortable conversation <laughs> to have. Right? Like, hi, honey. <laughs> So, we got some stuff. Funny story. (laughs) Don't be mad. But again, there was no evidence that he ever did anything with Elizabeth. All actual evidence shows that he remained faithful and was a proper gentleman. So hopefully it all worked out for him. Okay. Now, the next suspect we have is Leslie Dillon. Leslie was a silly 27-year-old man who thought writing to a psychiatrist in the LAPD about his sadist inclinations while presenting his theories on Elizabeth's murder was a good idea. Hmm. hmm He and Dr. DeRiver exchanged several letters where Leslie ended up suggesting a friend of his as the killer. So, of course, Dr. DeRiver believed that his friend was not real and that Leslie was, in fact, guilty. He convinced Leslie to meet in Las Vegas, where they were accompanied by two undercover police officers. When Leslie spoke about intimate details regarding the murder, the two police officers arrested him. It wasn't until he literally paper airplaned himself to freedom that police released him from custody. And when I say he literally paper airplaned himself, he wrote a note in his cell, folded it into a paper airplane, and shot it out his window. Oh my god. <laughs> Who found yep. it? Yep. Just some random person walking down the street. <laughs> She's like, oh look, a paper airplane. This says I'm innocent. I should no. probably hand this over to the police. Yep. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> We believe you with this piece of paper. Uh, Now, there was no concrete proof that placed Leslie in L.A. or San Francisco, which is where he lived after the murder. So he was in L.A. and then he moved to San Francisco shortly after. There's no proof that puts him in either city. So he doesn't have an alibi to say he wasn't there, but there's no proof that he actually was there either. Mm -hmm. Then it also turned out that his friend did, in fact, exist. uh, But just that Leslie hadn't given their real name. So then, of course, once they hunted that person down, they also didn't fit the bill. So they were both sent off on their way. Uh, Then Leslie Dillon was found out to be wanted in, like, several other cities for, like, armed robbery and other random crimes. None which were murder. All were robbery related. Um, So, like, not a good dude, but, I mean, I'm glad he didn't get put away for a murder he didn't commit true doesn't make me like him anymore but now we have dr patrick o'reilly patrick was actually convicted of a crime just not this one Uh, he was a close friend of mark hansen who ended up being another well-known suspect of the case so mark was the one that owned um the nightclub that Elizabeth was known to frequent and who was the previous owner of her address book. So Patrick liked to attend the 
let's call them special parties that Mark would host for a more exclusive guest list. Ooh. They were sex parties. So, like, to each their own. You do okay, you. No yeah. judgment. No. You, yeah. Um, but Patrick was later convicted of assault with a deadly weapon for taking his secretary to a motel and bludgeoning her to near death because that's what turned him on. Whoa. Whoa. Yep. Yep. Whoa. Yep. Yep. Like, he kind of had these parties and then it got worse? Unclear. Oh. Not or gonna lie, it, I didn't particularly want to dig into it. But <laughs> uh, I, I do too, right? Oh my gosh. Fair. <sighs> anyway, he was known to attend these parties. So basically he was known as like a sexual deviant, which made him them look into him because there was also, you know, like a link that connected him back to Elizabeth. So they looked into it and they're like, oh, he is extremely violent. Great. So he kind of started to fit the bill a little bit there. Um, He was also missing part of his right peck, which allegedly resembles one of the injuries that Elizabeth had. So apparently part of her actual peck was missing when they removed her breast. Whether that was intentional or not. I want to think that it was intentional with how specific the bisection was. Mm -hmm. Makes me think that everything was intentional. Um, to cut so that's just an interesting little comparison there. Um, but he was also deemed not guilty. Uh, then we have poor Daniel Voorhees. Uh, the Times Herald published an article on January 29th, 1947, claiming that Daniel Voorhees had admitted to Elizabeth's murder and had turned himself into the LAPD. The article stated Daniel had previously been arrested in Phoenix for rape in 1942. However, according to the FBI file, his criminal history is a little different. He was actually first arrested for auto theft in December of 1934 in Phoenix, then again in February of 1936 for disturbing the peace. He was arrested in September of 1942 for a rape charge, but the case was dismissed when he was inducted into the U.S. Army during World War II. He was then later arrested in 1945 in Salt Lake City for vagrancy, disorderly conduct, and one other unknown charge. All fined for a whole $25. Uh, that would be roughly 475 Canadian today. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, now, that being said, do you know what a vagrancy charge is? Mm-mm. So, originally, way, way, way back in time, Um, The vagrancy charge was initially brought into effect um, because churches used to, like, if anyone wandered by, a church had to help them. So, like, you're just wandering through, like, nomads, things like that, just, you know, passing from town to town, didn't have a, like, steady or permanent address. Um, A church would have to take that person in, provide shelter, food, things like that. Oh, yeah, like, seek refuge. Exactly, yeah. Um, but that, of course, as the population started to boost, really um, it became right yeah, it became like really taxing on the church. Yep. So, um, I forget what country it was. I'm fairly certain it was England, but don't quote me on that. Um, but eventually, when that became really difficult for churches to continue, the vagrancy law came into effect, saying that they did not legally have to provide that. 
Um, and then, of course, they had to name such individuals and they na- uh, they coined the term vagrant. Um, so vagrancy became a term that just implied homeless or someone without a fixed address. Um, and you would think that, you know, as centuries passed, vagrancy laws wouldn't be a thing anymore, but they are everywhere. Canada still has them. Hmm. Yep. Um, so it's illegal to be a vagrant in certain places. Good to know. Yep. Um, obviously certain places have much more aggressive and terrible vagrancy laws um, than other places. Um, the way ours is written isn't loving. Um, but that's a subject for another time. Anyway, being charged with vagrancy just means that he was homeless and wandering around and people didn't like it. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Yes, yeah, so he was fined $25, which is so rude. So 475 Canadian today. So like, hey, you're homeless. You're being fined $475. Cool. That seems yeah. fair. Right? I have nothing, but okay. Yes. So Daniel told the police that he couldn't stand it any longer and that keeping this secret was making him sick. Um, a newspaper article from the Washington Herald noted that a psychiatrist was brought in to examine Daniel during the process of his questioning at the police station but they were unable to come to a definitive conclusion on if Daniel had a mental illness that could have contributed either to the confession or the murder. Um, Eventually, the FBI, not eventually, quite quickly, really, the FBI ruled him out as a mental case. I did not. That is not my words. It is literally written on the file. Um, And then, of course, that it was a false confession. Mm Mm-hmm. Next up, we have Walter Bailey. Walter was the father of Elizabeth's eldest sister's maid of honor. So, whoa, literal three degrees of separation. (laughs) Jesus. So Elizabeth's eldest sister gets married. The maid of honor in that wedding, her dad became a suspect. Oh, okay. Yes. So Walter was a surgeon who lived on Norton Avenue where Elizabeth's body was found. He also owned a medical practice that was very close to the Biltmore Hotel. He specialized in hysterectomies and mastectomies. Now, Dr. Bailey is interesting because he does come close to the profile that John Douglas gave. So being a surgeon, he is desensitized to blood. He was very comfortable with a knife. He had a very strong link to the crime scene in that he literally lived down the street. He entered new financial stress the year before Elizabeth was killed when he was no longer the chief of staff at the hospital he had worked at and he was no longer the surgical professor at USC. He then walked out on his family to instead be with his new surgical resident <gasps> mm-hmm. Ooh. so all of this like um emotional relationship familial all of that turmoil plus financial stress of losing like two very high-ranking 
positions in the community. So that does a lot to your psyche. Mm -hmm. And then it was found after his death that he, I can never pronounce this word correctly. I apologize. But it was found that he had encephalomalacia. Encephalomalacia. (laughs) Oh, encephalomalacia. Yeah, that. I don't know why it is so hard for me to say that word. (laughs) It's hard. Yeah, it's difficult. Trust me. It hurts my brain (laughs) to say that. Um, So for those of you who don't know what that is, it is where there is a decrease in softening of the brain tissue after a brain bleed or inflammation. Um, So that's actually one of the things that doctors were monitoring me for for a long time after my brain injury. Fun fact. Mm -hmm. Um, So it basically means that a loss of brain tissue after an injury. So after an injury to the frontal lobe, encephalo... Say the word. Oh, encephalomalacia. That. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's been found in multiple psychopaths and killers after a frontal lobe injury. Um, Now, this in no way means that if you seriously injure your frontal lobe, you'll become a terrible person or have a psychopathic tendencies or now a serial killer. No, 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 no. Just that changes in personality are known to happen sometimes. And in a Venn diagram of Venn diagrams of Venn diagrams of brain trauma, frontal lobes and murderers, there's like a little sliver of commonality. Um, So, yes, so at some point he may have had head trauma, which led to the sudden changes in his behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in the case of Dr. Bailey specifically, I found no evidence that he was a bad person otherwise or had any reason to murder Elizabeth. Um, sadly, he did pass away in 1948, so a year after her death, um, and he passed away from Alzheimer's. Um, which, of course, is also linked to brain tissue deterioration. Um, which can also come on a lot sooner and quicker uh, if you have had serious head trauma. So I'd be really interested to figure out if he did actually have a serious head injury that then caused um, his change in habits and personality a little bit mm-hmm. yeah um so of course being that this is an unsolved case he was i don't want to say cleared because he died um so they couldn't like totally clear him because they couldn't question him um but he was on the list of suspects uh that they took quite seriously mm. Now, this next suspect is kind of like the modern day focus. So, not everyone, but there's a strong kind of like leniency that this person was the killer. We do not know that for sure, but there are quite a lot of different people in the crime world that believe this person is guilty. Hmm. So his name is Dr. George Hodel. 
now, Steve Hodel is a former LAPD detective and a true crime author. So after his father, Dr. George, died, Steve was going through the belongings at his house where he found a small album tucked away in the back of a closet with various family photos inside. At the back, however, he found two photos of a woman who he thought looked shockingly similar to Elizabeth Short. Now, don't get too excited. Turns out the photos were not her. However, the discovery of these photos are what launched Steve into an investigation of his father, and there is a shocking amount of evidence. A handwriting expert compared George's handwriting to the notes that were sent to police from the killer and determined there was a strong likelihood the handwriting was the same. A receipt from a hardware store showed that George purchased 10 five-pound bags of concrete only a couple days before the murder, and those bags matched the kind that were found around her body that police determined were used to carry her body to the scene. (gasps) He was also one of the top suspects police were investigating at the time. So they had bugged his house, and there is a quote from an article in The Guardian with a section pulled from the transcript of what they heard in the house one day. So this is a direct quote from The Guardian. Most of the transcript is dull. Hodel has sex. He berates his secretary. He talks about money problems. But on the 19th of February, 1950... There's a haunting exchange. 8.25 p.m. Woman screamed. Woman screamed again. It should be noted, the woman was not heard before the scream. Later in the day, Hodel talks to a confidant. Realized there was nothing I could do. Put a pillow over her head and cover her with a blanket. Get a taxi. Expired 12.59. They thought there was something fishy. Anyway, now they may have figured it out. Killed her. Their surveillance continues routinely, but for one telling moment. Supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia. They couldn't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. Whoa. Yep. That's so crazy. (laughs) Yep. I've read that multiple times and I'm still getting goosebumps. That's so crazy. <sighs> so That's just I... based on that transcript alone, I'm like, yeah, he did it. He, yeah. him. It was him. <laughs> um, all in all, Steve has hundreds of pages of, now it is all circumstantial evidence on his father, George. Um, but Stephen Kay from the LA District Attorney's Office wrote to Steve in 2001 that if Dr. George Hodel was alive today, he would be charging him with two counts of murder. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so getting that back from the L.A. District Attorney's Office, saying, like, yeah, there is an- you've gathered enough evidence, I see it. You're like, yeah, he's- he did it, I'm charging him. Like, mm-hmm. that's... that's... Even crazy. though it's all circumstantial, that is... It's a lot. So Steve compiled all of this evidence in his first true crime novel, Black Dahlia Avenger, uh, which was released in 2003. It Mm -hmm. received rave reviews, but ultimately 
did not lead to the official closure of the case. Mm-mm. So even though there's all this evidence and the district attorney's office was like, yes, we, we support this. I agree. The case is still technically open. Wow. Yep. Because it's all circumstantial. Yeah. You can't close a case based off of circumstantial evidence. So it's just going to remain open. Yep. Now, this last suspect, the letter itself, I don't want to laugh at the things that this woman experienced or that she's reporting. It's all terrible. She went through a lot. But the way that my brain read her letters made it almost seem silly to me. And I don't know that's just like a coping mechanism after going through all of this horrific evidence and things like that from the crime scene. Yeah. Um, But this woman wrote to, and unfortunately, I do not know what her actual last name is. It's written in cursive and then like photocopied of a photocopy of a photocopy. So it's a little hard to read. Um, But her initials are E.T. And she wrote directly to Edgar Hoover. So like this woman pulled out her typewriter and was like, I'm going to write to the director of the FBI. Uh, You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to write a letter. (laughs) (laughs) To the guy who made the FBI. (laughs) (laughs) And I think I think it's just that because like back then that maybe that that wasn't such a strange thing. No. But like thinking of that now, I'm like, are you crazy? Right? That'll never make it there. So I think that was more like like good on you for thinking that that was going to go somewhere. Yeah. But he did receive the letter and he responded. Oh. To which of course then she responded again and again and again and again. And, and, again, over and, over and over again. And he responded very politely every time. So like good for you, Edgar. <laughs> Yeah, at least responding. Yes. Now, this suspect was Mr. Hawkins of 454 Figueroa Street, apartment 405 Los Angeles. So this was sent on February 15th, 1947. So one month after Elizabeth's body was found. Dear Sir, I had occasion once before to write you, April 10th, 1940, and feel impressed to do so again now. That other was a personal matter. (laughs) It just seems so silly, but I know that's, you know, that's the way it was done then. But just comparing to it now, it seems fake almost. Mm -hmm. This one is of grave public importance which is being grossly neglected, if not abetted, by the police. On the night of the 14th of January, there was an awful rumpus here in the house on the fourth floor of apartment 405. A Mr. Hawkins, whom everyone used to call the old policeman, has lived there for a long time. I was told that Mr. Redacted, the woman 
next to him in apartment 403 heard it all. The terrible, obscene language the man was using and the woman screaming and ran down and reported it to the manager, Phelps, in the office. He at once called policemen. Twelve, I was told, came and took old Hawkins, covered with blood, to jail. Oh, my God. Right? <laughs> this is this is such like a long... He said, she said, that she said, then he told this person. Like it's but such I a long gossip that, chain, but it's so yeah, good. <laughs> that's why it's so good, because you're even like, you sound like from the 40s, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> and, and she told me this, but according to so-and-so. Right, it. it's so good. Later, an ambulance came to get the girl's body. Oh, okay, good, great. Um, it was all cut up and terribly mutilated. Her mouth was cut from ear to ear. The lady in number 400 fainted when she saw it. The next morning, the body of the Black Dahlia was found dumped out of a lot on Norton. Hawkins, all cleaned up, was let out by the sheriff and allowed to come back here to live as though nothing had happened. He's been going and coming ever since, or so I'm told. And the second murder in L.A. within the past week, February 10th, has all the earmarks of his dirty work. <laughs> all of that is just the first paragraph. That's amazing. I love right? that. It's so good. But also, like, if all of that's true, that's terrifying. Yeah. They made things sound not as bad as they actually were. Right? I'm like, but the- what do you mean? That's horrific. Yeah. Um. Anyway, she goes on to say that she doesn't know if anyone's looking into us, that the police appear to be doing nothing. Um, and then saying that, like, oh, maybe it's been all covered up. Um, and then, of course, she mentioned that the Times mentioned a $10,000 reward for information. So then I'm like, okay, well, now I believe you even less. Mm-hmm. But then she closes with this. We women are beginning to live in mortal terror of these conditions that are happening around us. For this corner was once a highly respected neighborhood. We have no place to move and we cannot get out. Mr. Hawkins has been involved before in other questionable affairs Everyone in this house could get evidence in regard to this matter. (laughs) And then she goes on and starts listing Lady in 202, Lady in 400, Mrs. Benjamin in 301, Mrs. Brand in 300. She's just calling out people. Just lists her neighbors. (laughs) She's just calling out all of them. And then like not saying anything specific about them. Just like dropping apartment numbers. Yeah, like, oh, she's got something to say. She's got an opinion too. Yep. And then she's like, um... All of this just, uh, I just wanted to let you know. I am just, <laughs> just so you know, because I wanted you to be informed. Um, if you haven't heard of these happenings, this is happening in our neighborhood. Um, Everybody panic. Please do something about it. Okay, thanks. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh, and there's, there's a PS. If you should answer, please answer in plain envelope. In plain envelope. <laughs> Love it. Please shove this underneath my door. Oh, God. Anyway. Um, so, yes, if any of that in that letter was true, that's horrible. And I am so sorry that any of the people in that building lived through it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the way that it was written, just such like a XOXO gossip girl, made me laugh. 
Yeah, 100%. Um, and I wanted to stick that at the end there. Oh. Anyway, I tried to shorten it because obviously people have written books and movies and oh, it's not, made it's their so living good. off of telling this story. Um, yeah. So I tried to keep it as true as I could as well. And I will, um, I'll be listing all of the uh, references and things that I read. Um, if anyone wants to read any of the other articles. Um, yeah. It was it was heavy. <laughs> that was a lot, but I got a lot too, unfortunately. It's a very gruesome night. Yay! Yeah, it's pretty gory. <laughs> okay. Pretty, pretty and so we're going to France, yet also Japan. Wow, those are two very different cities. Or those aren't cities. Those are countries. They're two very <laughs> different countries. <laughs> those are two different places. It's my bedtime, yes. okay? <laughs> well, same, same, same. But we'll get through this together. So, trigger warning. Oh, a lot of, a lot of. If you weren't triggered already, yeah, um, right. <laughs> if you weren't triggered at the mutilation of a human body. Get ready. Anything I didn't say, um, get ready. Yeah, because we're going to stumble down the road of cannibalism. Ooh! I that probably is like a the good one dinner. thing I didn't mention. Um. Yep. Right. Yep. <laughs> it gets worse. Oh, it's just so bad. So don't listen to this if you're about to eat. Especially if you're about to eat meat. As I'm literally putting handfuls of popcorn in my mouth. <laughs> Popcorn's okay. I could probably handle with popcorn. Cannibalism? Mmm. Mm, popcorn? Mm. No, not like eating jerky and then they're like, well, <laughs> I'm done um, now. I asked Chris if he had any requests for us to cover one day. Mm-hmm. And the only one he has ever said is the story of Sonny Bean, who is quite possible that I, somewhere down the line, my... Grandfather on my mother's side is potentially not proven, but potentially related to Sonny Bean, who was like the most well known cannibal of England. Oh, and he just thinks that it's hysterical. I'm like, "Eh, I feel like you're just stretching. I'm like, just because the last names are the same does not mean. Yeah, I don't. I don't know how far that branch will be related yeah, to I'm that like, tree. Yeah, I'm like, I feel like that's incorrect. I think that might be a part of another tree there. <laughs> yep. 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 Oh gosh. Ooh, spooky. <laughs> anyway, so cannibalism. Cannibalism. So this fellow actually made a pretty name for himself, where he is known all over Tokyo. And he is walking free. He's walking free. Like right now? Yeah, like like Just eating people? Yeah. Like, just like walking around, not really doing any harm as of yet. But Uh... he has his brother looking out for him, let's say. So we're going to go dive in and go back to the 80s. You're in Paris, France, and you're, uh, you know... You're a spunky person. You have so many ambitions. This was, um, unfortunately, Renee Hartfeld's, you know, um, 
time of her life where she was just starting out. She was going to school in Paris, France, and uh, she just had her whole life ahead of her. Um, And so was uh, Issei Sagawa. Issei was known to be just this lanky kid, uh, didn't have a lot of friends, a little weird, um, but he really liked Renee, like they became friends and she seemed very nice towards him, all of these good things, but there was a dark side to Issei. I mean, there's a dark side to us all. Everyone's a little yeah. weird. But he... He indulged on this. <laughs> you know that little oh, thing no. in your brain that says, oh, probably not a good idea. Yeah. That yeah. was a little weak on his end. So Good. Great. Uh, Issei was born on April 26, 1949. And for as long as he could remember, he possessed cannibalistic urges and fascination with eating human flesh. Wow. Remember the fondness with his uncle dressing up as a monster and luring him and his brother into a stew pot for eating. What? Yeah. Obviously, he probably didn't, like, go through with it, but he whoa, pretend. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I have so many more questions now. Yeah. So First of all, I was like, well, hold on. How You just always knew you wanted to eat people? That's fascinating. Right? I have questions. How would you season a person? Like, I don't. <laughs> and he gets down to the delicacy to the point of, like, it's almost like tuna where it's a little well like if you wanna tiny. like whether you actually do it or not like if you think about a certain food for long enough you're gonna start thinking about how you would cook it presumably yeah yeah and th- he would obsess over that from an, a young age these are the questions I have probably yeah. not the right ones but I have <laughs> them <laughs> right so apparently it stem- it started to stem from that and it just became this little. This little inkling every time you know he would see a it was usually particularly women beautiful women um young girls um he wouldn't go too young he would just he would he would admire women with perfect skin and lean and all of these things right so he also had a very huge like self-confidence issue right so mm-hmm. he was made fun of a lot and he was very lanky and he just didn't have he, he thought he didn't have a chance with anybody right so if he could mm-hmm. be friends with people get a little bit closer and then see where it would kind of take him mm-hmm. kind of deal so he's, he's he's approaching that pretty quickly um so then he would as a kid Seek out fairy tales that involved humans being eaten. His favorite was Hansel and Gretel. He even recalls noticing classmates' thighs in the first grade and thinking, hmm, that looks delicious. Oh. Yep. (laughs) Okay. I'm sorry. How many fairy tales end in people being eaten? I know, right? Like, I only think of Hansel and Gretel. And I'm like, well, maybe, like, Japan has some stories. I I feel like there's a lot of German that too <laughs> well, well now I'm Krampus and stuff right yeah but that's more like stealing them and beating them he doesn't eat them does he yeah he would eat them mm. he would eat bad children he wouldn't give them mm. cold how each many other. children <laughs> stories end in them being eaten <laughs> oh Cannibalism in classic fairy tales. Oh, <laughs> there's probably a whole section. 
great. Someone thought about it. Someone wrote about it. We ate the children last. The Guardian. Oh, great. Cool, 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 cool. <laughs> There's a lot. So it was easy for him to blame media's representation of Western women like Grace Kelly for sparking his cannibalistic fantasies and equating. I'm sorry. With, yeah. And he would call it for sexual desire. He's like, it was basically the whole, well, then why are they dressing like that? And like waving them all over my face. Like they're okay. asking for a bad. Right. Okay. Like that's you leave Grace Kelly alone. <laughs> <laughs> right. Grace Kelly didn't know nothing. Um, <sighs> but uh where other people would dream of you know betting beautiful women like usually it was like you'd see sports illustrating or whatever or playboy and you'd be like yeah yeah i could do some hanky panky but you know this guy was just classic. like no i want to eat them that thigh looks that thigh looks like delicious like it it so was a were his cannibalistic tendencies also linked to his sexuality yeah that's pretty weird. well like he like it goes on where he does go into a mental institution but mm-hmm. only for a brief period of time and that shit is like this is since his childhood right he's also in his like 20s at this point yeah so um yeah Issei would say the reasons behind his cannibalistic tendencies can't be explained or conceptualized by anyone who doesn't share his exact urges, which is fair, but that's fair. That's valid. There's, there's also like a lot of psychology behind all of this. So it's interesting. Yeah. And I quote, he says, it's simply a fetish. For example, a normal, if a normal man fancied a girl, he'd naturally desire to see her as often as possible, to be close to her, to smell her, to kiss her, right? To me, eating is just an extension of that. Frankly, I can't fathom why anyone doesn't feel the urge to eat or consume other people. What the fuck? Right? Right? Okay, but if it's thinking of it just as a fetish, but he was also, like, looking at it in grade one yeah yeah i have so many questions yeah he well like he would just think i love that person i wonder how they taste like i want to i want them in my body so bizarre he maintains however that he never thought of killing them only chewing or not that is an important distinction on their flesh good for him that is a very important distinction yeah i didn't want to hurt i don't want to kill them I just wanted to chew on them for a little bit. That's okay. That's fair. Because it's not like he didn't want to hurt them. It wasn't yep. like a pain thing. It was just a just a little rumbling in the tumbling. <laughs> it pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> he always, uh, he did state he was always short and skinny with legs that look like pencils. He wrote in his best selling book. Uh, it's called In the Fog. So this is where it kind of gets weird is that he's also written and pretty sure came out with a, a bunch of other things. Like he he's a pretty well known author, which oh, okay. is re- really weird, right? Well, like good um, for you. Yeah, but like after eating somebody. <laughs> well, you haven't told me he actually uh, ate anyone yet, so. <laughs> uh, oh well, get ready. <laughs> you wouldn't oh, be known great. if you didn't. Great. Oh, I'm just gonna think about doing this. 
So he believed in just under five feet tall, he was too repulsive to attract the kind of physical intimacy that would have tempered his desires. Aw, that's so sad. Yeah. So instead, yeah. Although Segawa um, did once attempt to see a psychiatrist for his urges at age 15, he found it unhelpful and retreated further into his isolated psyche. Then in 1981, after uh, repressing his desires for 32 years, he finally Whoa. acted on them. That's respect, first of all. Yep. So, um, he thought it was like a good idea. He would, he has these urges. He's going to change his habits a little bit. He's going to study some literature at Sorbonne. Um, a public research university, and once there, he his he said his cannibalistic urges took over. He thought he was gonna kind of change his perspective a little bit, you know, take his mind off things. But it just got worse after that. Almost every night, I would bring home a prostitute and then try and shoot them from behind. He wrote in the fog. It became less about wanting to eat them, but more an of an obsession with the idea that I simply had to carry out this ritual of killing a girl no matter what. What the fuck? Okay, now... Now we're getting no. darker, No, right? no, 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 no. And then we come to Renee. Renee Hartfield, again, this uh, awesome Dutch student studying with Sagawa at Sorbonne. Over time, um, Issei would struck up a friendship with her, occasionally inviting her to his home for dinner. At some point, he gained her trust. And this is how it worked. He was her friend. Um, he did attempt to kill her once, unsuccessfully, before actually murdering her. The first time, the gun misfired when her back was turned. He had a rifle. Though most of this would give as a sign to give up, um, he only wanted to keep going. So he's like, oh, I failed this time. I'm going to keep going. It was like giving him a thrill. He said okay. it made me even more hysterical, and I knew that I simply had to kill her. No, you were doing so good. Right? There was a sign. The gun misfired. It didn't go off. <sighs> the very next night, he invited her over again. For fuck's sake. Over some dinner. Well, you know, First of all, dinner. she heard him shoot her? No, he didn't. And she it, goes like, back? He, well, he di she didn't see the gun. You'd hear it misfire. I don't know. I don't know. But apparently he gained enough trust for her to come back. What the fuck? The very next night. And that's where, like, documents get really weird around this, especially around Paris, France, right? Where a lot of their uh, court proceedings and all that seem just very weird. Just very interesting. Especially with this one. Okay. So... We'll go back. So it's the very next night after the gun misfires and he's trying to shoot her from behind. She doesn't hear it. Or so documents say. Um, she agrees to go back the next night and he fires a gun. <laughs> into, the, into her neck. Oh, and he apparently said he only felt remorse for a moment before he came elated. Ew. Yeah. I thought about calling an ambulance, he recalled. But then I thought, hang on, don't be stupid. You've been dreaming about this for 32 years. And now it's actually happening. Ugh. It gets worse. Trigger warning for rape. Great. 
Immediately after killing her, he raped the corpse and began cutting her open. Okay. Yeah. The first thing I did was cut into her buttock. No matter how deep I cut, all I saw was fat beneath the skin. It looked like corn. And it took That's a while very to common, actually... apparently. Yeah. Well, it's cellulite and fat and stuff. And it took a while to actually reach red meat, he recalled. The moment I saw the meat, I tore a chunk off with my fingers and threw it in my mouth. It was truly a historical moment for me. Oh. Oh. Uh. I'm going to go vegetarian after this. Oh my god. Just like the impulsiveness. But the fact that like you're willing to take a, like someone's like soul for this. Like you're, you want to take your life. You're willing to take someone's life for a snack? Literally. Because you can't contain yourself. Uh, ultimately he said his only regret is that he hadn't eaten her while she was alive. Oh. What I truly wish was eating her living flesh, he said. Nobody no. believes me, but my ultimate intention was to eat her, not necessarily kill her. Uh. And he did write also in another book that eating someone who was alive, you would get like some sort of an immunity. Like you would be younger or there would be oh fuck off, a lot of health perks to it kind of deal. Which is okay. so wrong. You don't, by the way. Don't ever think. <laughs> no, it's not a thing. Don't Jesus. eat people. Um, two days after killing Hartfelt, Segwa uh, disposed of what remained of her body. He had eaten. He had eaten or frozen most of the pelvic region. So he put her legs and torso and head into two suitcases and hailed a cab. Jesus. The taxi dropped him off at the Bois de Boulogne Park. I'm sorry if I mispronounced that. We're not going to talk about it, Don. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Boulogne? Boulogne? Um, No comment. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know what that is. Um, It actually had a secluded uh, secluded lake inside of it, so he had planned to drop the suitcase in it, but several people noticed the suitcase being dripping with blood and noted French police. I should hope so. Right? They're like, something's dripping from that. That doesn't look so good. And he's a pretty sketchy dude. Um, When police found him and questioned him, uh, his response was simply admission. I killed her to eat her flesh. Straight up. He just said it. To them. Right in the park. Okay. Like, I'm glad, but also, no. Oh, God. Ugh. Like, literally, two suits. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh. So sad. But um, also, good! Get out of here! Go away! Now for the trial part and the oh, great. just disaster that follows. Um, he awaited his trial for two years in a French prison. And when it was finally time for him to be tried, French John Jean-Louis Bruguier uh, declared him legally insane and unfit to stand trial! Even though he just said straight up, like, I know what, he was confident in what he said. He goes on to write books about it. Like, he he knows what he did. So, because he was insane and unfit to drop, or to stand trial, the charges were dropped and ordered him to be held indefinitely into a mental institution in France. However, they said, no, because he's taking up space here. Deport him back to Japan, and then he's not our problem. 
but we're not going to give the court documents and our findings to um, Japanese uh, prosecutors. What? Why? Right? It was it was um, like a political thing back then. What? Are you serious? So, yeah. So he was supposed to go to J- Japan to a mental hospital for the, the rest of his life. But because the court documents were never ordered, he was deported back and to live his life. Oh, for fuck's so, sakes. So the only thing was that he had to have a guardian at all times. And so his brother volunteered. Okay. So because the, because the charges in France had been dropped, the court documents were sealed and couldn't be released to Japan authorities. Therefore, the J- uh, Japanese had no case against him and had no choice but to wa- let him walk free. Jesus. So then, and then on August 12th, 1986, um, he checked himself out of a psychiatric hospital in Tokyo um, because I guess they had to do some sort of check-in on him and they said, no, he's not insane. He knew what he did. And he was set free. So he just kind of is weird and walks the streets like a he just, he, he people watches, apparently, is what a lot of um, articles and stuff kind of note. A lot of people, I think, are, are like, they know him. Yeah, he people watches. He watches yeah. his meat go by. Um, so, yeah, today he walks the streets of Tokyo, where he lives, free to do as he pleases. A terrifying thought when one hears that the threat of a life in prison hasn't done much quell on his urges. Mm. Um... He, in quotes, states, the desire to eat people becomes so intense around June when women start wearing less and showing more skin, he said. Oh, for fuck's sakes. Just today, I saw a girl with a really nice derriere on the way to the train station. And when I see things like that, I think of wanting to eat someone before I die. What the fuck? And that wasn't, like, where? what year was that that he stated that? Like, that was, like, late 1990s. Yeah. He goes on to state, What I'm saying is, I can't bear the thought of leaving this life without ever tasting that derriere that I saw this morning. Or her thighs. He continued, I want to eat them again while I'm alive so that I can at least be satisfied when I die. He's even planned out how he will do it. I either... Oh... Remember when you said that when you think of something to eat, you think of how you're going to cook it, right? Oh, no. Oh, no. So I can't pronounce these two words, but it's basically lightly boiled thin slices is the best way to go in order to really savor the natural flavor of the human meat. Okay. How would he do that? Hmm? How would he know that? In what? Because he did it. He did it with Renee. Just that one time. Now he's like the best way to cook it. Well, unfortunately, there's also reports of eight other women that have gone missing and their okay, bodies dismembered. Yeah, there it is. Okay. And he hasn't been tried for any of them. Great, cool, 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 cool. Ugh. In the meantime, however, he's refrained from cannibalism. But that hasn't stopped him from capitalizing on his crime. He makes money on all of the books that he writes about all of what happened. 
Why? Who who is buying these? The same people that write letters saying that they killed people. (laughs) (laughs) Some pretty messed up people there. And to date, he has published 20 books. His most recent book is called Extremely Intimate Fantasies of Beautiful Girls. What the fuck? Oh, yeah. And you can see it on uh, uh, a lot of websites. And it's it's purchased, I think, for like $39. What the fuck? Yep. I hate humanity. Right? And it is filled with pictures drawn by himself, oh, as well as famous sense. artists, apparently. Why are artists doing this for him? Because uh, he quotes, I hope that people who read it will at least stop thinking of me as a monster. Oh, for fuck's sakes. But he gets a little taste of his own. He suffers from diabetes and suffered two heart attacks in 2015. He is now 72, lives with his brother in Tokyo, and continues to garner media attention. And now in 2018, French filmmakers recorded the two talking. And, um, And it's him and his brother talking. And he goes, as your brother... So the one that's taking care of him. Would you mm-hmm. eat me? The only response Segawa gives is an empty stare and silence. Oh, God. And that was also from the wonderful article from All That's Interesting by um, Karen uh, Candace. Well, then. Or sorry, Katie Serena. Sorry. That's a very different name. <laughs> yeah, sorry. It was the other person that were there. Yeah. Lovely. Crazy, right? Well, that was disgusting. So, unfortunately, a sad ending, but yeah. Jesus. Don't eat people. I have goosebumps. Oh, my God. Right? I can't. I can't even. I'm just like, even looking. Uh, I just don't know why. Sometimes I look at these photos, but I just, you know, the curious mind. And it's just, oh, like he. I'm sorry to be graphic here, but like, you know, when you eat a chicken wing. <laughs> That was her bottom of her thigh. Like, that was the bottom of her leg. (laughs) And raw. (laughs) So bad. So gross. Okay, so there was this story. I don't remember where I heard it from. Um, I don't remember, like, if if I heard it on another podcast or if I read it somewhere. Honestly, it was probably something that, like, um, I like one of those, like, random nights where it's like Dayton or Chris probably said it like something stupid like that probably Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. anyway there was this guy who had to get his leg amputated and originally I guess as a joke he was like hey here's a couple of my friends I'm getting my leg amputated next week it's probably the only time we will ever actually be able to taste human flesh and see oh, what it tastes like. No. No. Oh, yeah. No. Yep. No. They what? literally. Uh. So he literally cooked his own leg and made like little sandwiches. 
What everyone, the fuck? Everyone just had like a single piece just so that they knew what it tasted like. Like they I didn't have any could, like they no. didn't have any wants before. There was no like inclination. It was just like one of those curious minds was like, well, when in Rome, I'm like that's like me coming into work being like, I have a serious skin flesh eating disease. Might uh, be the last time, you know, this might be an opportunity. You want to be my friend and eat my, eat my toe or something? <laughs> like, I don't know why he was getting his leg amputated. Like, I obviously, they released uh, his leg to him. So, like, there couldn't have been anything, that's like, health-wise wrong with, like, the skin or the muscle that he took. But that's the other thing is when you get something amputated, obviously I don't know enough to judge, but like, just don't, what, what are you going to do with your leg? What are you going to do with your hand? What are you going to do with your finger? Just make it into a nice ribeye steak. Oh, just leave it at the hospital. You don't need it. What are you going to need it for? Could you imagine that conversation with the doctor? Yeah. After you amputate, can I take it home? Can I have it home? And they're like, no, 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 dude. No, we're not. We're not putting embalming fluid in a jar and being like, well, here's your creepy jar. Ew, ew. Oh my God. Just hang it. It's <laughs> seasoning. It's marinating in formaldehyde. Here's your pickled finger. That's so disgusting. <laughs> oh my God. How should I put this on? I'll just put it on like a burger. Well, it's been marinating in formaldehyde for about six what? weeks now. Uh, oh. <laughs> if anybody knows what that smell is, it's oh, so God. it's indescribable it's like well, something most you... high school students do now right like if you take bio most high school students true. get to do like actual that's true. And stuff. it's just it's, a, it's yeah. so disgusting oh my god it's so bad it's so bad oh yeah goosebumps and i kind of feel like i want to vomit um <laughs> <laughs> i'm salivating in a bad way Ew. Like I want to vomit. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So gross. So gross. Changing the subject. Yeah, don't eat people. I hope you like that story. Oh, Sweet God. dreams. <laughs> don't have steak and eggs tomorrow. <laughs> Ew, God. Um, oh, God. That's so gross. Um, there was a recent discovery in France recently mm-hmm. that uh, there is like a full iron uh, sarcophagus that was found under Notre Dame. <gasps> I want to see that. I want to go. They're going to open it. I want to see. I wonder what's in it. Well, apparently they think it's like from the 13th or 14th century. That's so interesting. Yeah, they had no idea like that it was there. Um, but the rules in France around that kind of thing, it's like, um, I forget the term for it, but it's basically like historical bodies, like something like something in that realm. All um, I know is that so we researchers need Tom are. Hanks. Yeah. And Someone call Tom Hanks, Tom Hanks and Nicolas Cage. To, we need your help to solve this crime, <laughs> the Da Vinci Code. But also, somehow, Nicolas Cage needs to steal a sarcophagus now? Questions. Yeah, National Treasure, right? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I got that. That's good. Um. Anyway, so yes, so they are going, they're working with uh, France officials right now to 
open this thing up, see, try to figure out who it was, you know, what their role in society was. Um, and then according to French law, French, according to French law, French law, according to France law, um, the person will have to be re-entombed and reburied under Notre Dame. Really? Mm-hmm. They have to redo it and mm-hmm. then put them back. So they're like, it's fine if you follow these rules when you're doing it to maintain, you know, the respect for the dead. Oh, fair. But you have to put it back where you found it. Well, I'd be surprised that they wouldn't be putting it in like a museum or something. Well, that's the thing, right? Like they wanted to take it out and study it and then put it on display. Yeah. And France is like, no, absolutely not. It goes back where you found it. Let them stay to rest. Yeah. Don't Which like, don't, I respect that. Don't dig up bad dirt, right? But like, dig it up and then put it back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Figure it out and then okay. Yeah. So that'll be coming up in the news, I guess soonish. Once they Ooh. run all their tests, they haven't officially opened it yet. It doesn't sound like, because um, it was pretty recently that they dug it up. Anyway, have a lovely evening. Dream of travel instead of questionable snack choices. Yes. Yes. I will bring you some Oreo popcorn tomorrow. I will bring you not human flesh. I appreciate that more than you will ever know. <laughs> yeah, no, I consider myself uh, approaching the vegetarian threshold a little bit every day when I th- read these. I've been, I've been approaching articles. that for some time now. <laughs> I know, right? I'm like, I think I'm just going to lean towards the yeah, green. Good. I'm probably good. Bit. Yeah. Yeah. Alrighty, All right. folks. That's all for today. Lovely day, afternoon, or night, whatever it is. Um, say hi to your ghosts for me. Yeah, they're watching. <laughs> Someone's always watching. They're looking at. You.